Welcome to the Whole Whale Podcast. This week we're covering recent nonprofit news from the past week from our nonprofitnewsfeed.com tool that runs around the internet and does pick up great stories here today. Nick and Carisha. Hey, Carisha, how's it going? Kick us off. What were the top stories? Yeah, I think this week is pretty interesting. Our first story at a glance is BioFundraiser highlights real impact of revenge giving, which I think is a pretty interesting concept. Um, So apparently rage giving is all the rage. Um, It started with Tommy Marcus, who's a 25-year-old graduate from the University of Michigan. Uh, When he learned about the death of Rush Limbaugh, he felt it appropriate to to donate to Planned Parenthood. Um, He took a screenshot of his donation and it went viral. Um, and the fundraiser generated more than a million dollars and more than 44,000 donors, um, which is pretty interesting. You never really think of revenge giving as the the, t- the perspective that organizations would use to... Uh, yeah, what can I say about the passing and legacy of Rush Limbaugh for the social impact sector? Not much. This is a person who made their career on, you know, dumping on and treating poorly almost every single... Uh, cause, issue, race, uh, ethnicity, all of it uh, combined. So, you know, a great way to channel this into social impact, right? People are in a high energy emotional state, and that's either positive or negative. And when it's channeled toward, uh, you know, positive, it's, it's the common that we're doing good for the good reason. But you know what? Spike giving is a real thing. We saw so much of this over the past four years during uh, that you know former presidency where people were pissed about things at the border and then would be initiated to give and and so this is by no means new but what we hope you take away is the idea and strategy of saying hey here's something that is frustrating our potential audience quite a bit in the news and this opportunity to say hey let's take that high energy negative emotion and channel it toward impact toward fundraising toward action I mean it, it really is an opportunity to, to do that. Again, if you think about it, that emotional state as a matrix, you have low energy and negative, which would be depression. And on the positive side of low energy, you have you know calm and serene. And then on the high energy side, high energies are you know excited, invigorated. And then on the left, it's angry, ferocious. And it's the same energy that makes you want to tear something down uh, you know, or, or burn it down or potentially build it up. And so keep an eye out for those opportunities. And, you know, it's great to see an extra million dollars go to Planned Parenthood. Just incredible. Yeah, definitely more of a, a peer-to-peer kind of fundraising strategy <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Yeah, more at a glance news thinking about nonprofit jobs. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been kind of keeping track of um, just how many nonprofit jobs are out there. And a recent study was released by John Hopkins University, and they say that it might take up to two years for the job market within the nonprofit sector to fully recover. Um, we're seeing that industry jobs are short as of February 2020 by more than 950,000. Um, so pretty close to a million there. Yeah, the nonprofit industry definitely tends to lag in accelerating, decelerating behind the main uh, economy. And what we are seeing right now is that you know deficit of 900,000 plus jobs is going to take a while. And it's also logical, too, because if you figure how long it's going to take us to get back to normal, right, fully vaccinated at the earliest people start gathering and acting in a way that we did pre-pandemic in like earliest of Q3 this year. But then you also factor in the fact that vaccines for children fully won't be necessarily all approved until Q1 of 2022. Yeah, 
is what I, I recently heard from the sort of uh, Fauci uh, announcements. It's like how many children's services and, and work that nonprofits provide to that age uh, just won't be able to get going until then. Hopefully, stimulus and other things uh, accelerate that. I hope it's wrong. I hope this trend is wrong. But I see where they're coming from and making that assessment. I hope so, too. <laughs> All right, Nick, we uh, have some summary topics uh, that we covered in the newsfeed email. You want to cover? Sure, George. I can jump into the summary. So this first story is about the NBA choosing to televise two historically uh, Black college and university basketball games in honor of Black History Month. And this is quite interesting because the NBA has really been, although not perfect, at the forefront of pushing professional sports to more actively address and promote causes of social justice. And I think there is an interesting narrative here about how uh, professional sports works in tandem and can help drive conversations around important social social justice issues, whether for the NBA it be Black Lives Matter or even issues like human rights in Hong Kong, how the NBA and professional sports can often be at the forefront of these conversations. So what I love about this actually is that the HBCUs are getting an additional bump in platform and recognition. That type of extra attention shouldn't be like underestimated. If you think about how much like college football and basketball in general like raises college basketball raises the profile of these major uh, colleges and universities and institutions like it, it just it brings in more students, more cachet and by the way, employers that are saying, "Hey, you know what? I saw that team play. I saw them in the, you know, uh, fill in the blank." So Another interesting thing about the athletics is that Ivy League, right? The Ivy League is that, right? That cachet that came with sports for, you know, a handful of colleges hopefully begins to carry into the HBCU community and saying, hey, here's like an amazing, high distinguished qualifying group of folks. And it's a brand that continues to grow this way. So I like I salute the NBA for this. This is awesome. All right. Our next story uh, comes out of Colorado Springs, where a nonprofit has made masks um, with a clear section in them so that folks who are deaf or, or hard of hearing can communicate better. And I love this story because it pushes to the forefront something that, you know, in, in the craziness of, of the, the current climate, sometimes unfortunately gets pushed to the back, but that's that inclusivity matters. Um, inclusivity and uh, kind of an integral understanding of all the different uh, walks of life and folks and different types of people within our communities. Um, we're all hurting from this pandemic in different ways. But what I love about this story is this nonprofit really addressing the need for including people, in this case, those who are deaf or hard of hearing, um, in What's the new normal? And hopefully we can um, push uh, those living with disabilities to kind of the forefront of those conversation, especially as they are often uh, the most vulnerable to public health crises like this one. This is also a need of many teachers that work with young students that like 
the students can't see their lips. And a lot of what happens there is like, it's not just hearing, it is seeing their lips move that are part of the educational process. And I love when you look from a diverse disability mindset and saying like, who is the underserved community here? You come up with like, hey, that's a pretty darn simple innovation of, you know, creating that that section of see the, the mouth talking. All right, what else we got, Nick? All right, our next one is about a Dallas nonprofit that has been forced to respond in an emergency capacity to uh, the crisis in Texas related to, of course, the winter storm and subsequent power and water failures. And uh, this, there's an organization on the ground in, in Dallas that was able to get up and running uh, shelters for folks um, seeking refuge from the cold within mere hours. Um, so I think that this story highlights uh the necessity for these nonprofits, but also the unique role that they can play in responding to crises in often the, a way significantly more uh, nimble than a government response, uh, a big rolling bureaucracy. Uh, FEMA's been working in Texas as well, but these nonprofits, they're on the front lines of, you know, kind of all of our, uh, all of these natural disasters. Yeah, you see a lot more also in terms of immediate response, direct giving from people on the ground, cutting like quick checks to, to folks. And maybe there's some error in that. But frankly, the, the speed is what saves lives. And you see nonprofits and people working on the ground doing that uh, a lot faster and sometimes even more uh, efficiently, certainly, than and the government mechanisms. Not to say that those aren't necessary and part of a balanced diet of dealing with disaster. But we always like pointing out where the nonprofits are picking up slack and doing amazing work. All right. That, I think, brings us to some of the opinions and resources that we collect. So one that we want to call out this week, an article published by successful nonprofits is arguing for $20 or more out per hour nonprofit minimum wage, um, which I think is a very interesting topic. I think nonprofits and the nonprofit sector have kind of had this bad rep for uh, needing only volunteers or kind of underpaying their staff or doing a lot of work. Um, and this brings up a very interesting point about the need to pay people more, even if it's for a good cause, right? And I think it also brings up an equitable uh, workplace balance, right? If people are only being paid a certain amount, which might be lower, it means that those who already have wealth or money can kind of take these jobs on, right? If I'm uh, supporting two kids, I don't necessarily have the capabilities to take a lower paying job as opposed to maybe a for-profit organization that can pay me a little bit higher. Um, So definitely an interesting topic to think about, but then also thinking about the capacity of nonprofits and if they have the budget to do so. Yeah, you know, especially with the sort of minimum wage conversations going out there, having that conversation of putting that in, in context, they make this like case, you're like, oh, well, uh, you know, $20 an hour minimum is a lot and a lot for some organizations. They talk about uh, Metro Atlanta revealed that uh, the caseworkers that are working for an organization supporting um, low uh low-income communities are getting paid like at max 32K a year, require a bachelor's degree, essentially working out to $15 an hour, which puts them actually square in their own low-income categorization of saying like, I should be providing my services to myself. I don't have the flexibility. I have wild responsibility in dealing with other people's lives. And you're no way, shape or form being, you know, compensated for that because by the way, you probably have some college debt uh, in addition to that. So, you know, it's, it's a great point. Um, I don't know, 
truly what the solution is. But I like that that take by successful nonprofits. And so I like it when people make the case with just straight up numbers. And Nick, I think you had one you want to bring up as well. Yeah, George. So there was um, another article about uh, the blind spot of philanthropy. Um, and this is from the Stanford Social Innovation Review. And kind of the, the thesis statement of this opinion article is that sometimes the philanthropic space, uh, uh, especially which, you know, moves around large sums of money, sometimes uh, our rural communities kind of get um, lost in the fold and uh, forgotten about. And, uh, you know, rural poverty is one of the most pressing problems in America. So um, just an, an interesting read to think about reshaping that, uh, you know, for a lot of us, even though maybe we don't experience that, um, and that's not something that we, you know, see visibly within a lot of our daily lives, especially as more Americans move towards the cities, but uh, rural communities, there are also struggling rural communities, and it's important not to forget them um, within a, a kind of social impact framework. Yeah, I think the nuance here that I, I kind of pulled out is using measurement. There's always a theme we love, but of measuring distress, not population. A city has tons of population, and it's in a raw sort of number of people. You're like, yeah, sure, you send your money to where all those people are. But when you look at it with a lens of distress, quantifying and truly looking at that, it, it shows you a different map and potentially remaps the way you, you, know, you analyze and, and they talk about using like opportunity indexes. And I'm like, this is, this is getting to the point of actually quantifying where, where large amounts of money, if we're talking obviously in philanthropy, could be going. So super interesting and glad they're thinking that way. Nick, you get the honors of the feel-good story. <laughs> Thanks, George. This is a good one. Um, this is a story about uh, a company called Helltown Brewing, um, which is working with uh, an organization um, called Helping Hops, uh, in which case uh, 150 from each draft of their beer uh, go gets donated to local county food banks. Um, uh, this is a, a Pittsburgh area program, but uh, just kind of a, a great story and an out-of-the-box thinking um, for kind of social change where you're helping a small business, um, maybe a medium business in this case, but you're helping them out, but also helping out people on the side. So kind of a win-win. And I think that we need to think more about um, being proactive about this kind of model. Uh, so we're going to have a lot of rebuilding to do after this pandemic, George. So uh, a great story here, but you'll love to see it. Yeah. And I think looking at it from the perspective of not just obviously had, checks all the boxes for me. It's about beer. I've recently become a home brewer and I haven't poisoned myself once yet. And alliteration, which is great. And, and cheesy puns of Helltown hopping hops and, and, and brewing. It, it's all there. But I think more importantly, to think about your organization's potential alignment with corporations, local companies, and what that alignment could look like. That doesn't just accidentally happen. Someone found somebody, said, hey, what if we work together in this way? And, and reaching out certainly to, to brewing companies and others uh, with clever ideas like this. They're like, wait a minute. Yeah, we could be in, uh, you know, 
getting PR for both of our organizations. And by the way, that is a win-win. So consider that. And if you can use uh, metaphors or alliterations, you should do that. Or the peak of all humor, puns. You should use puns. <laughs> all right, that's Nonprofit News Feed Summary. You can get them weekly for free at that address. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Carisha. Thanks, George. Thanks, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 